Welcome to Remote Control, the Varieties TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking about season two of Stranger Things with executive producer Sean Levy. Stay tuned. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, and it's my pleasure to welcome Sean Levy. Hi. How are you, Deborah? Good. How are you? Very good. Happy to be here. So, caveat at the top, we're going to be talking all about Stranger Things, so if you have not watched yet, do not listen. Stop right now. Also, what's wrong with you? Because I think this posts on Friday, and we've been streaming as of Friday midnight on the West Coast, so get to work. Exactly. You're not a true Stranger Things fan if you have not seen all of it. And if you haven't seen all of it, you might want to call in sick today and just get it done. Exactly. This is definitely priority number one. That's right. So how does season two compare for you to season one? You said it's scarier. Yeah, I mean, we've been saying that for many months because it is, right? I mean, you've seen it, Deborah, and certainly the the series still kind of mines the tropes of other genres and of films that have come before us. And, and, and without question, some of the touchstones for season two were more horror than simply wonderment and suspense. So the horror influences of Stephen King and of John Carpenter are very much at play in season two. And, and most excitingly, though, for me, well, I guess the two things that were always the most exciting for me and, and have been borne out as I now see all the episodes finished is a, it got bigger without abandoning its characters, and it feels far more cinematic. And it's not like season one felt modest in scale, but season two is without question uh, filmmaking on a more on a, on a broader canvas, and that's been really gratifying. Did you have a bigger budget to play with this time? Yeah, we definitely had a bigger budget. We didn't get, I mean, contrary to its reputation, it's not like it's empty checkbook time or, or blank checkbook time at Netflix, but... From our first meeting, before we even started prepping season two, uh, there was a big meeting at Netflix, and the Duffers and uh, I and, and our producing and kind of key crew went in, and we laid out a vision for season two. And it was very clear that what interested the brothers, which was and always will be the basically the North Star of season of, of all seasons of Stranger Things is... What turns the Duffers on as storytellers? My job is to get them that. My job is to protect that. And so what, what, what was on their mind was a bigger cinematic scope, and that would require more time, more money, and without question, as you now know, much more VFX money. Absolutely. You can see that. What pressure did you feel going into the season, given that season one kind of came out of nowhere and was the sleeper hit? Did that build up the pressure for you this time out? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we got pretty good at silencing those voices, those outside voices. And in fact, at the table read for season two, I gave kind of a welcome speech to our cast. And I said, look, we've all watched our lives change since season one. We know that our audience expects a lot from us, but now we're here and we're among the only people who knows what it feels like on the inside of this group. So let's now close the doors to that cultural noise and just do our jobs. And we were able with a very kind of nice amount of success to quiet that noise, trust the instincts that brought us here and do our work. How do you answer that from a creative standpoint? Was this the story the Duffer Brothers wanted to tell all along? Yes. Um, the guys, you know, we have a writer's room, but I have to say that the show is a bit of an aberration because it's a small writer's room. 
for starters, but it's a minuscule producing staff. I mean, if you look at the episodes, there's really only five executive producers. Two of them are twins. One of them's our line producer, Ian Patterson. And then it's just me and Dan Cohen, who works for me at 21 Labs. And keeping it small allows us to stay very close and true to the vision. A lot of what you see in season two is exactly as it was laid out in outline form. But what's more kind of interesting and highly unusual is that when I was directing episodes three and four, there was a plan for the second half of the season. And the brothers were feeling this kind of low-grade dissatisfaction with it. So they had the audacity, which only a 33-year-old who's never done this before can have. Um, They had the audacity to throw out the plan and literally re-break reinvent huge chunks of plot line for the second half of the season. So a lot of the stuff with Steve Harrington did not exist. A lot of the stuff with Billy and that late episodic moment with both Karen Wheeler and also with his own father, where we kind of get a glimmer into why he is what he is. Mm -hmm. Those things were were not part of the plan. Amazing. Um, But the Duffers have been really good at seeing what the actors are giving them and changing course in order to exploit the very kind of specific strengths of our actors. That's amazing. And was Netflix supportive of all of this? Incredibly. I mean, the whole thing, I rarely use that word audacity, but because we don't do the show for a typical network, we don't do the show with a studio, and there's only five exec producers. And as I said, two of them are writing, creating, and twins. So... The kind of channels that decisions have to navigate are very limited. And generally, if the brothers feel it's the right thing to do, then my job is to make it clear to everyone involved that that's what we're going to do. Talk about the new cast members. You introduced them. You mentioned Billy. You introduced lots of new people into this world, and yet they fit into it seamlessly. How did you pull that off? Well, for starters, we did what we did when we were looking for these kids before season one. We saw hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, The role that Linnea got in episode seven, we probably saw at least 200 people for that role of Kali, uh, who, you know, it was a code name when people were auditioning for it. I'm sure. Uh, Same thing with Bob. Same thing with Sadie, who got the role of Max. We just saw a lot of people, and, and much as we did for season one we were looking for talent of course but maybe more importantly we were looking for authenticity because the magic of the show so resides in the naturalism of the kids you don't feel like you're watching kiddie actors doing their thing and so we knew that we couldn't bring in actors to season two who felt like we could see the work we needed the work to be kind of effortless and seamless in the way that it was already in season one so Sadie, for instance, who plays Mad Max, she came in, she had such a captivating look, and she just didn't push it. She didn't push. And the same thing with Paul Reiser, who's incredible as Dr. Owens, is kind of the anti-Brenner, affable, charming, funny, um, and and seemingly worthy of one's trust. Uh, They all, all these characters came in with traits that felt true to what was in the Duffer's minds. Maybe none more so in a weird way than Bob and Sean Astin. We saw some other people for that role and we never imagined Bob being like Sean Astin. We didn't picture him talking like Sean, looking like Sean, being like Sean. But Sean gave a reading. 
Which, by the way, I just want to pause on that because in this day and age where you have actors who have done, you know, one guest spot on a CW show and they suddenly declare themselves offer only, <laughs> that is the state of our business right now. Right. Sean Astin's been in like 900 movies, many of which are classic. And he's like, yeah, I'll read. That's amazing. And he read and he showed us what he could do. And that's why I got the part. Fantastic. I was going to ask you, with Sean and Paul Reiser, how much did their 80s cred play into you wanting to get them into the series? For Reiser, it was a big thing. Um, the boys were already invoking Aliens as a touchstone for just an example of a great sequel. And so with Reiser, Matt and Ross, when they were breaking story and pitching it to me and then Netflix early on, they didn't have a name for the character other than Riser. It was going to be Riser. So we were so boned if we didn't get Riser. Um, and that was always baked into how the brothers envisioned Owens. And thank God, Paul's son, I think, had watched season one and loved it. So he told his dad, this is one you just say yes to. So in Paul's case, yes. In Sean's case, I can tell you that the Goonies legacy... Uh, you know, that was something that actually made us pause because we didn't want our viewers to think we were stunt casting. And so it's why, you know, normally I wouldn't talk about an actor's audition, but it's why we think it's important that everyone realize, no, Sean Astin got that part because he auditioned for that part and he crushed it and he won that part with his reading. And it wasn't the fact that he was famously iconic from one of the movies that influenced us. That's kind of a nice bonus, but it wasn't the driver in that case. Talk about the 80s influences for this season. There's a lot of aliens. There's a lot of gremlins. It really owns its 80s you know, credentials again. And we always have. We always have. We're not trying to... You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, certainly uh, gremlins and the whole idea of Dustin finding an adorable pet that would become nefarious and ultimately <laughs> and three rules and, and yes um, and like nougat loving and we you know there's such charm early on and I had the pleasure of directing those early scenes where Dustin basically befriends Dart and they bond over a shared love of three musketeers bars uh but so Gremlins was a big one. I would say Goonies also. And when I mentioned earlier that some of the storylines were invented midstream, one of them, maybe the biggest, is the pairing of Steve Harrington and Dustin. Really? And the the kind of this idea of coalescing a teen with our younger kids, that was nowhere in any outline. And we got to the end of episode four and we were all feeling like well, shit, Steve Harrington is feeling insecure. Nancy's kind of broken his heart. And there's no way you want to have an actor like Joe Keery moping for the last five episodes of a season. And so as the brothers were thinking about, well, what would be a good opportunity for just a different tone, a different move to make with Joe? This idea of pairing him with Dustin, who needed help and who himself was going to go through some romantic achings. Um it seemed like gold. And I remember the first time I read an outline and there was an allusion to uh, to Dustin and Steve talking about hair product. I was like, well, that's that's gold. That's like, I don't even need to know anything else. Just give me Steve Arrington and Dustin talking about hair product. And we were home free. This season definitely has a lot more humor to it. I mean, I, I know it was always there in the first season, but this season it feels like you've absolutely embraced it. The brothers have said, actually, um, that going into season one, they didn't really think a lot about the value of humor because they're such genre nerds. They're self-titled genre nerds. And 
felt a million miles away from comedy. And in fact, that was one of the kind of oddities of my background when we teamed up to make the show, uh, because obviously that's a language I've spoken in a lot of the films I've done. And what they said is early on, I remember at the premiere of season one, there was a scene that got a laugh. And they came to me afterwards. They're like, that feels good. That feels really good. And it was the first time they kind of named how successfully humor can coexist with tension. And uh, and I think that season two, they were more aware of that and they wrote to that. And I think, honestly, they found that they have a real capacity to write in that tone as well. Um, and some of my favorite moments in season two are the ones that, that kind of combine really like tense suspense with an unexpected laugh. You definitely pulled it off. What other storylines did you invent? I'm so curious about this. This is great. Well, the one, uh, certainly Steve and Dustin was unforeseen. Um, Billy needing to use his sexuality and his flirtation to get critical information from Karen. We knew we had laid the seeds. We always knew that Karen and Ted's marriage wasn't going to be in great shape in season two. In fact, early on, there was talk of maybe a divorce or a separation. We didn't end up doing that, but we did... You'll note Karen is not without a glass of wine in every single scene that she's in in all of season two. And it could be 12 noon. She's drinking already. God bless her. Um, and, uh, but, and so there was that one. I think for a long time it was uncertain whether Max would end up with Dustin or Lucas. And finally, Lucas became kind of the clear choice. But again, part of why Lucas and Max end up being the romantic pairing is because we felt that Dustin wasn't going to be alone because Dustin formed this alliance with Steve that ends up giving him a kind of life lesson and strength uh, beyond whether or not he wins Max's affection. Uh, but a lot of the things, I mean, look, that finale episode, we always knew that episode seven was going to be an aberration. We always knew we wanted to try something really different. It was a bold uh, move by the Duffers Early on, declaring that a whole episode was going to be Eleven looking for her roots, looking for someone like her, and no other series regular would be in that episode. And uh, we're hopeful that even though it's different, that fans embrace it for its difference. What it did end up doing is springboarding Eleven back to Hawkins for one of my favorite moments. I mean, I think a lot will be said about episode nine, mm -hmm. which is great. But episode eight, and I've told the Duffers this many times, that might be my personal favorite because of not only those scenes where people are trying to wake Will up with monologues mm -hmm. invoking their history, which I think sweet. is just, I think yeah. it's so, so moving. Mm -hmm. And the writing is so strong and every actor delivers in that scene. Um, but I remember reading that moment where Will is Morse coding, that he's kind of in there. But then the episode, end of episode eight with the return of Eleven is just as badass and satisfying a moment. I mean, it's up there for me with the snowball, and we all know that nothing can top the snowball. Nothing can top the snowball. But, and she's got this great new look. I know. That was, uh, that was a fun one for hair and makeup and wardrobe to design, and I think Millie had fun with that, too. Does episode seven open up avenues for you in season three? Is that a world we're going to go back to? I think it's very possible. Um, I don't think... I think that there's some doors that went, well, you know, there's some gates that thank God can be closed. Um, but, but narratively, when you open certain doors, I think 
there's no way to consider them closed again. So I think that episode seven certainly establishes that Brenner seems to be alive and seems to be out there somewhere. And uh, and again, as we sit here today, I literally have no freaking idea how much and what we're going to do in season three. It is taking shape as we speak. That's the genuine truth. But I think that um, I think we're not quite done with Brenner. And I think that clearly we know that eight exists and we know that 11 is 11. So surely there is the very real possibility of other numbers. Nine, ten. We can we can name them all. Who is one? That's who is one. I want to know who's number one. Are there things, other things that you want to see in a third season? Honestly, we have notions, and I, I've been living with terror for a year because I'm a walking spoiler risk because I like to talk, um, and I'm like I'm so close to having succeeded at keeping my mouth shut, so I don't want to now ruin it by saying too much about season three. Um, I have to say, I really. I think that one thing that excites me is the brothers are really clear about the fact that no matter what we do with scale and threat and genre, our DNA as Stranger Things starts and ends with these characters. And it's so easy to lose your way once everything becomes possible once you're a hit. So just making sure, and hopefully this came through in season two, that we're going to, we're going to make sure we service these people that, that we all love. So going deeper with character, going into things like not necessarily Steve and Dustin again, but you see how juicy it can be when you pair two characters you already knew, but who had not intersected in a narrative. I think we're going to do more of that with our series regulars. And, uh, and I think that certainly we're going to explore potentially a world beyond Hawkins. Great. Speaking of characters intersecting, we have to talk about Eleven and Hopper, that relationship between the two of them. Was- you know, when you talk about what was invented midstream, that wasn't. I can tell you that from the very earliest story meetings about season two, there was a feeling of, well, shit. We- Am I allowed to say that? Yes. We yes. have these two titans. We have Millie Bobby Brown we have David Harbour. Those two together in a cabin as a virtual family, as a de facto father-daughter for two characters that are looking for healing Mm -hmm. in the form of a daughter, in the form of a father. That was so, so tantalizing that the Duffers declared early that was that pairing. And I can tell you that as soon as they pitched the idea of a knockdown, drag-out fight where they're screaming at each other and eventually Eleven, being an adolescent, throws a tantrum, but in her case, it's a psychic tantrum. Um, as soon as I was, oh, I lucked out again. I get that episode. In season one, I got the Christmas lights. And in season two, I get the psychic tantrum. Um, but we always knew that Hopper and Eleven was just going to be a, a, a massively powerful pairing. And it's powerful up front as we see them forge their bond. And it's so satisfying in the finale episodes when we see this this new family of a certain kind uh, reconstitute and come back together stronger than ever. It's so tremendous. I mean, and finally we get to hear Eleven using more words and learning how she discovered her vocabulary. I mean, that relationship between the two of them. I think I have a mad crush on David Harbour right now. You know what? I think um, David Harbour, you're not alone. First of all, Deborah, let me give you the comfort of knowing you're not alone because the number of women um, and a few men who have told me of their 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 crushes in Harbour, he's just, that character 
is so it's complicated, but he feels so solid. And David Harbour is a guy who spent his whole life as number seven on the call sheet. And here we gave him this opportunity and he stepped up in the most forceful, confident way that it has me believe in things like destiny. Like here's a 40 year old actor who we all kind of know from movies we don't quite remember. And he got his shot and he delivers. It's fantastic. I was literally, you know, one of my guilty pleasures of Lauren Auto reruns. And I was watching one this weekend and there was David Harbour in it. So it's just amazing to see where he's come. I feel like that's as brave a confession as your David Harbour crush. <laughs> exactly. Is the fact that you were watching Law & Order reruns it's my this com- weekend. It's my comfort food TV. When I love it. in the morning so and I can't fall back asleep, I put on Law & Order. I'm glad and that we like, created this safe space for you. <laughs> thank you. No, no one's ever going to hear this. Please don't judge. <laughs> Talk about Millie Bobby Brown's performance. I mean, she was a revelation in the first season, but I think this season she just ups her game. She is like a prodigy. I don't know how else to put it. She came into her callback almost two years ago now, and it became really clear that this girl has something beyond acting chops. And what's really kind of... I get asked a lot how we keep these kids grounded, how we and their parents are able to keep them grounded even though they're now the most famous kids in the world and none more so than Millie. And the closest thing to an answer that I have is when they're on set, when Millie comes to set, I and we as directors, we don't care that she's super famous. We treat her as the same actor that she was when no one knew her name and we expect her to deliver. And I have to tell you, Millie is able, I mean, she's like the face of brands and fashion lines and like she's the it girl. But when she gets her hair done as 11 and she puts on those overalls and those Converse and that sweatshirt, she lets everything else fall away. And I got to tell you, there's not a lot of talking about technique with Millie. You explain what you want out of a scene. She takes a minute inside herself and she delivers it. And what's remarkable is when she doesn't deliver it, she has the guts and the self-awareness to go, you know what? I think I can do better. Can I have another? And she'll ask for another take. And invariably, she's right. There's another one that was left in the chamber and she sensed it and she gives it up. And uh, she's just a rare, gifted actor. How do you even approach directing a scene like that psychic tantrum, you know, when you're trying to balance and you've got these real actors in front of you, but you know that you're working against visual effects? A lot of it is you rehearse it as much as a TV schedule will allow. And as a director, you shoot, you shoot chunks of pages in longer shots because if you do a different shot for every two lines you make it impossible for an actor to get those juices flowing because every time they're about to you're saying cut and you're finding another angle so on that day I remember we didn't have anything to shoot but that four page argument or something like that and we just did these long shots many of which were handheld so that they could just go they could just be unleashed and they could trust that me and our camera department was going to capture it. And when it involved throwing a couch into his kneecaps or flinging a dictionary back in his face or slamming a door, um, we would, of course, have to pause and rig those things. But I would always try and give them some lead-in to ramp up the fury so that the scene had a certain kind of uh, intensity throughout. Was that the hardest scene for you to film? Were there others? Um, I think that uh, Millie in the... After she's seen the person she now knows is her mother in the Black Void, and we come back 
to her in the cabin. And I do this shot where I'm pulling away from her and she's just sitting on the floor of the cabin and she's just wailing and calling out the word mama. Um, that that was intense. And there's a lot of scenes like that in season two. And in general, though, Millie, when she knows she has a scene like that, you don't talk to her a lot. You try and keep the set quiet. You let all the other actors know we're going to give her some space, especially the boys who like messing around with each other. Um, and that would not be a time to try and crack her up. That's a much. Um, but she's just, she really, she, I don't know what, I don't know where she goes in herself to access that pain, but she's able to do it. And, uh, and it's like a magic trick. Absolutely. I mean, the first season she barely had a vocabulary this season. She is more, but she still does so much with silences. Yeah, in fact, I'm a little bit. I, th- I I'm. I find it bittersweet that next season and in future seasons we need to keep giving her more language, because there is something about the largely um, wordless eleven that makes it's why it's always felt like she's ET, right. she's ET, and she heals Mike like ET heals Elliot, um, and and the brothers and I have never talked about that overtly, but I think it's a pretty clear paradigm, and so as eleven gets more language. I think it's going to change her relationships with Hopper, with Mike. Um, I mean, does she get to go to school now? That's a good question. I'd love to see her in school. Um, So we'll see where it all goes. But she does things with silence that are exceptional. We haven't talked about Winona Ryder and her great chemistry with Sean Astin. How did that come together? Was that immediate between the two of them? I think that they knew each other prior. I don't know why or how. Maybe just because they were both famous for so long. And there's like a club of famous people. I'm, I'm unclear on that. You're um, not a member? I'm not. No, I'm not a member. That's, that's specific. To, there's, there might be a, a, a successful director club. I've met a few of those people. But um, no, they know each other for decades. And... They loved each other. And Winona loved Sean. When we filmed his death, she was literally racked with sobs. The sight of him covered in blood going through that, it destroyed her. Uh, similarly, though, I have to say, like, her watching Will tied to that bed in the cabin in the finale. When Winona sees an actor going through something agonizing... Even though Winona, the actor, knows that it's fake, she is such a live wire emotionally, which you can tell on screen, that the anguish she feels, it seems damn real because I think it is. It's like she loses herself in those circumstances, and it's why her performance in those scenes is so exceptional. And what we've asked Winona to do two seasons in a row now, like... I don't know that Joyce Byers will ever just get to be a regular person who like works at the town store and has two sons because Winona seems to be because she's so brilliantly capable of harrowing emotional places. We keep asking her to visit them and maybe we always will. You also ask a lot of the boys. I mean, Will, you know, so much is dependent on Will Byers this season. I have to tell you, I hope we're sitting here next award season and people recognize that this is the, I, I jokingly tell Noah it's the season of the schnapp because he is the center of season two. And his performance is unfucking real. I mean, that moment, there's a lot of them, but the one that I, I found just staggering is when he collapses in the pumpkin patch because they're burning stuff below and he has that seizure. 
he does things with his body and his voice that look inhuman. It looks like a visual effect, and it's not. It was all real? It's all real. And what Noah does in season two is the center of the season. And uh, we knew when we cast him that he was going to be underutilized in season one. And I just want to name this because that kid sat by, he was lost in the upside down. He didn't have that much to shoot. And then he watched everyone else get super famous. He watched his friends go to the White House. He watched his friends go on, you know, late night talk shows. And he never once was jealous. He never once said anything. He was supportive of these friends of his on the show who he loved and who had way more screen time than him. But we always knew that his time was coming. And we knew when we cast him, it was for season two. And this kid was going to be asked to be patient, which is really hard at any age, but especially at 12. Mm -hmm. And indeed, we finally let that Ferrari out of the garage in season two. And he's everything we hope for and more. Do you have a plan of who's going to take center stage in season three? Only very, very amorphous plans that are too early for me to speak to because I, I sincerely don't know them. It's amazing, too, to see that you're able to, like, the, the kids have grown into their parts so much. Was that a concern of yours, worried that the kids would be able to continue? Um, I'm glad you raised that point because... Naively, we didn't talk about it at all. Um, we don't shoot multiple episodes at the same time. We're not even doing the show that efficiently, to be <laughs> honest. Um, and that's largely because we have, we're not like, we don't have five writers who can be proxies for the Duffers. The Duffers are the voice of the show. And, um, and that makes us inefficient sometimes because they also are damn great directors and they love directing too. So, the kids are getting older, and really, the plan has just always been, we're going to write to who they are at that time. So in season three, they're full-on teenagers, and one of them is is an older teenager, right? Caleb is like 16 now. And so I think that the only rule we have is we're not going to infantilize them. We're not going to pretend that they're the kids from season one or two. And also, we've grown to trust their instincts about their characters. So we listen to them a lot. And... Um, their intuitions about what their characters would and wouldn't do, we we listen to those conversations. I want to go back to Sean Astin and Bob's death for a minute. And again, spoiler alert, if you haven't been watching, oh my God, it's guys. your fault. You're if you're so just lost. getting this now, you are so boned. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, we really do apologize. Did you always know that that was going to happen going into the season? Yes. Yes, and it's been really... Uh, there's been a few kind of social media, internet hunches about this, um, partly because Bob kind of sounds like Barb, uh, but that was unintentional. Uh, we always knew Bob was going to die. In early outlines of the season, he died earlier. And in early, early versions of outlines, I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, that in one draft of an outline, he died at Will's hand. Wow. Evil Will. Um once we saw what Sean could do, once we saw how warm and winning Joyce and Bob were together, we were like, no, 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 this guy has to stick around for longer. We're still going to probably break people's hearts because Bob, there was never a conversation that Bob would survive the season. We always knew that Bob could not and would not survive the season because partly because season two is about all of these characters yearning for normalcy. 
and the inability for them to ever have normal again. And so Bob is that ticket to normalcy. And unfortunately, we can't give that to Joyce because that might be the end of our storytelling yeah. if we ever allowed it. But we did stretch Bob to, I want to say, what, eight episodes. And then we used the death of Bob as the fuel for, in particular, Joyce's need for vengeance in the finale. And it just works, I think, really quite beautifully in a narrative way. So speaking of Barb, we finally get some resolution on that. Did you know you were going to do that going to the season? We did. Um, we knew she was never going to come back to life. Um, we made a lot of people on the Internet unhappy when we confirmed her death. Um, I'm not I'm still not clear why people needed that confirmed. She was pretty clearly dead. Um, and yet we always knew that Nancy's need for some kind of closure, Nancy's need to to free Barb's parents of their delusion that she's just missing, that that was going to be an engine for her character in season two. And indeed it was. I've got to give a shout out to the music. I mean, to talk about humor. I mean, the, the music is fantastic. It's all this great 80s stuff, but you really play with it as well. I mean, she's a little runaway. It was just, I was giggling so hard as dying. Yeah. There's a few mm. like that. And I think including, um, uh, you know, uh, what, what was it? The police song that ends the finale. I'll be watching you mm -hmm. um, as we revealed that there is some entity that continues to keep watch over all of Hawkins. Um, we do have a few kind of nods and winks like that, some of which are comedic, some of which are just a song that I remember from when I was in the 80s and like Radio Clash. I always wanted to use that. So I figured Jonathan would be listening to that. And then in another scene, the psychedelic furs. So I have to say, you know, our music gets a lot of attention. It's a very fun aspect of the job. It's perfect. It's just, you know, it, it, it feeds into all of the 80s nostalgia so well, but mm -hmm. really it's brought it out. Are you surprised that the show has become the hit, the conversation point it's become? Yes. I'm not going to, like, I know, I don't even know what an appropriate answer to that is. Um, we, we really never knew. We knew the show, we knew it was good, and we knew it was not like other things that we had watched. Uh, but we really didn't know if anyone was going to care. We didn't know if we were going to get decent reviews. We definitely never, ever, ever thought about awards. I mean, as Ross Duffer said after we won the Producers Guild Award, he's like, the show is starring kids and an interdimensional monster. Like, it's not like we built this to be awards bait. Um, it's all so thrilling. And then as far as the popularity and the ferocity of, of the love for the show... I have a few theories, but they only scratch it what it is. I genuinely don't know, but there's something baked into this thing. The 80s, the characters, the genre, um, the bingeability of it. I mean, it feels like a show that was literally made for a streaming platform. I mean, you yourself said you were going to watch one or two episodes and ended up going for a much longer haul. Nine so, hours later. <laughs> nine hours later. I don't quite know what the answer is. Um, I just say thank you every day. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking with Evan Peters about this season of American Horror Story. See you next time. See you next time.